Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can I welcome Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes to start the first ever live high note show? <laughs> As we suspected, predominantly male listenership. (laughs) Everyone at home, it looks like a working man's club in here. (laughs) We are recording this at Tibbetts, which is a vegetarian restaurant in Mayfair. We have already eaten copious amounts of food from the food boat. Is that the official name? It's not a buffet. And anyone who calls it a buffet will be forcibly removed from the restaurant. Is it a food boat? Have I got that right? It's a food boat and it's traditional Swedish food boat. I had some Victoria sponge though. Traditional Swedish. (laughs) Anyway, so thank you very much for coming to the first live episode. And also a big welcome to Dave. (laughs) Anyone who was with us from the early albums of Pandoli might remember Dave was our producer and then he abandoned us. Uh, But Charlie can't make it tonight. He's doing one of his gardening podcasts. (laughs) Um, So Dave, it's kind of like, you know, when Take That Reformed... And Robbie Williams didn't join for the studio recordings, but he came, like, on the arena tours. He did, like, a surprise, there's Robbie Williams. Well, here's Dave. (laughs) So thanks so much for coming. We're thrilled to be here, and we're thrilled to be donating 20% of each ticket sale to Women for Women International. Women for Women International helps women survivors of war rebuild their lives. Since 1993, Women for Women International has supported over 460,000 of the most socially excluded female survivors of war. Women for Women's ethos is founded in sisterhood, which is something that means a lot to Pandora and I, and I'm sure means a lot to our listeners. And in these rather choppy and horrible times, sisterhood is even more an important thing to hold close than ever, I think. I just wanted to see how many more times you could say women for women. Women. <laughs> That's quite a good tongue. You gave yourself about four women for women's. Yeah, it's a funny thing, sisterhood, because I think it gets misused quite a lot and it becomes quite cliched and hackneyed. And I don't think sisterhood has to mean a T-shirt that says, I am a feminist or any of that guff. It can literally mean, you know, uh, bonding with someone, whether they're sitting right in front of you or they're millions of miles away. And Women for Women International offers, I think, a really kind of unique way to help women that you're, you know, we will never meet the sister that we sponsor, but the impact that you can have on, on her life is you know, is huge. So it's a, it's a really nice notion of sisterhood yeah. and a really achievable one, I think. So what have you been up to this week, Pandora? So I finished Tom Hanks's book of short stories that I was talking about last week called Uncommon Types. Um, and and I must... you'll be very pleased that after my whining, Penguin have sent me a copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did make that quite obvious. I actually skipped the last few stories, I have to be honest, as I was got more excited by the arrival of other books on my bedside table. So it was sort of accelerated. And I'm still reading Nothing to Envy by Barbara Demick, which is about North Korea. Still astounded by that. But I've mainly been embroiled in house stuff as I've been moving house. So I've actually become that person that spends two hours Googling pendant lights. And that, yeah, no, that's pretty much my life at the moment. You're speaking my language. 
Honestly, I don't think there's anything that I've ever been so like like red blooded, dogged, passionate, and dogged about as finding cheap interiors on eBay. <laughs> like if I if I could take some of that passion and commitment and apply it to any other part of my life, I think I would have like a sensational. It would be a completely different life. What was that cushion you sold on Etsy again that I loved? Oh, and you won't let me forget it. It was one cushion. What did it say? It was so bad. It said something hilarious. I was 24 when I bought it and single. And it's not that young, Dolly. Well, I was ready to mingle. I just moved to the Bright Lights Big City. It said, but seriously, let's make out. Anyway. <laughs> did it work? No, I don't think I that got, cushion I don't think that cushion can single-handedly take credit for my seduction of my early 20s. So my news, I don't really have any news this week other than the fact that I don't have a smartphone and Kel Domage, I thought that I was um, a bit of a hippie and I thought, I thought you'd love it. You often tell me that your what you know your WhatsApp is backed up and I'm only allowed to email you because you can't go on because then people will see you've gone on. <laughs> that you just revealed that I do do that I'll say I'm hiding from WhatsApp does anyone else do that it's see everyone does everyone's so stressed just turn it off I why just, are we all doing it turn off your online turn off your red receipts turn off everything I did it but when you do go online if you have people eagle eye watching you even with the Terribly receipts popular, off <laughs> even with the receipts off it still says when you're online so then they catch you it's like you go into a room and they grab you <laughs> Anyway, so I thought I'd feel relief not being on my iPhone. My iPhone is in iPhone hospital. And it turns out, guys, I'm not as much of a hippie as I thought I was. Because I really thought one day it would be me, you know, raising alpacas, not wearing a bra, you know, no internet, no Wi-Fi, iPhone, forget it. Um, Ooh, the lights have just gone very sexy. Was that you, Dave? Do you go like this in what you do at home? Do you go like that? It's like a bachelor pad and it all goes red. Um, yeah, so I thought I would be uh, happy to be free of my iPhone, but it turns out I'm like on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I didn't realise how much I survived, how much I needed Uber. You do take Ubers. I've been with Dolly where she's taken like an Uber round the corner. That's a slight exaggeration. But I have to say, because obviously we're living in a How'd world... How did she get here today? A black cab. I would like to point out to everyone else recording this in London, we have a very good underground system <laughs> that most people have discovered, yet Dolly somehow st- still... Well, obviously, we're going to live in a future where there's no Ubers. And guys, I've been in the future the last few days. <laughs> it ain't pretty. It's like dystopian fiction, seriously. Well, it was quite apocalyptic tonight. Did everyone see that sky? As you had quite. What did you say your friend said? Is my you friend live in a world of privilege or something when everyone's freaking out? Yeah, about. my friend India sent me a message saying nothing highlights our privilege quite as much as the hysteria at the slight change of sky colour, <laughs> the slightly gloomy sky. Yeah, so that's been my main news. Been without, been without the iPhone. I've had a bit of a chocolate block week, so I haven't had much time to read. But I did immerse myself in the Sunday Times, which I thought was a particularly good edition this last Sunday. Marina O'Loughlin is the new restaurant critic for Sunday Times magazine. Obviously, she is filling the very, very big boots of A.A. Gill, who's one of Pandora and I, our favourite writers. But I think there's no one who could do it better. Did you read her review this week? Yeah, I did. It was I very it was really good. It was um, a very sort of elegant... I think anyone that took over from A.A. Gill was going to, you know have quite a lot of spotlight on them. And, and she referenced him quite a lot, didn't she? And yeah. I thought was nice. I'm actually going to read her closing paragraph I loved. 
She said, I appreciate this is, for me, an unusually A.A. Gillian paucity of words about the restaurant itself. I promise to go back to my usual completest ranting from now on. To my eternal regret, I didn't ever get to meet the man himself. We had two friends in common who would occasionally issue the vaguely regal edict, Adrian would like to meet you, but I bottled it every time. The fear of never meet your idols. Of course, now it seems the very QED of carpe diem. I promise also never to lapse again into sub-Boris, sub-Latin. What a fool I was. I just thought it was a really classy debut from her, and I'm so excited that she's the new restaurant critic, and I loved how she kind of weaved him through the restaurant choice itself and her prose. So that made me very happy. I also loved Indian Knight wrote her column on the 30-year anniversary of Ikea. Did you get that? Did you read that Yes, one? I saw that, and I loved the way she... Um, said that, you know, once upon a time it was only people with lots of money or someone that could have an interior designer could have a nice house. And now anyone kind of can have, if not the snazziest house in the world, you know, a relatively chic, well-furnitured house. She writes really well on class as well, which I really like. Yeah, she does. And she writes well on domesticity and the kind of realities of home life and day-to-day life. And you and I just love the minutiae. Pandora and I could just read about what's in people's fridges or bathroom cabinets from now until eternity. I don't know why I find it so gripping, but I love that piece. And as you said, she talks about how IKEA helped kind of transcend class boundaries and how she describes it as IKEA democratised good taste. As always, the links will be in our show notes. If you think it's annoying that we have to say it every week, imagine how annoying it is to get the email every day. I think the best was this week when I got an email to my personal email saying I couldn't find your email address anywhere. And I thought, short of tattooing it across my tits, I don't know where else I can put it. It's everywhere I can throw it. Well, that's going to be the grand finale of tonight. We're just going to get the needle out and then finally... (laughs) Tattoo my tits, that would be nice, wouldn't it? We had loads of responses to last week's episode. Those of you that did not hear it, it was completely dedicated to Harvey Weinstein. And so much has happened in the kind of story or the scandal since then. So... Lots of celebrities have joined together for the hashtag Women Boycott Twitter after the actor Rose McGowan, who's been very verbal and vocal over her experience of Harvey Weinstein raping her, um, was suspended from Twitter for sharing a private phone number. Masses more women have come forward, including Cara Delevingne, Angelina Jolie, Eva Green, with their own tales of being um, harassed by Harvey Weinstein, who has now been expelled from the Oscars board. His brother, Bob Weinstein, whom he co-founded Miramax Pictures with, called his brother sick and depraved and said that he has barely spoken to him for five years. He told The Hollywood Reporter, Harvey was a bully, Harvey was arrogant, he treated people like shit all the time, that I knew. He said his brother was philandering with every woman he could ever meet, but he had no idea that he was a rapist. I had a brother who is indefensible and crazy. I find myself in a waking nightmare. I am heartbroken for the women he has harmed. You've done a bit of a kind of change of thought on this, haven't you? Because now you've said... You well, don't... I just... I, I hate it when people are like, oh, my God, I had no idea. Because I just thought, well, if I knew that, you know, he was gross, then they all must have known. But I don't know. When you read the, when you read the interview with his brother, I think what he's saying, which to me seems perhaps realistic, is that everyone knew that he was an... You know, had a massive ego and he was a bully and he was power-hungry and he basically... Complete dickhead, cheating on his wives, both of them, all the time. But I... I maybe believe that they didn't know that he was capable of rape. Mm. I maybe thought that they just thought he was a really odious man, Mm. um, which is what his brother seemed to assume. One of the most interesting and quite depressing new elements I've read about is that the timing of the scandal might actually all come down to business in the same way that the reason why it was covered up for so long was because Hollywood is a business. So Jodie Cantor, who's one of the journalists 
who broke the story on the New York Times, told Slate.com, to be honest, I think that some of it is that Weinstein is a lot less powerful in Hollywood than he was years ago. There is a feeling that he was at the end of his career. And Lee Smith wrote something similarly interesting in the Weekly Standard. The media model that protected Weinstein has collapsed. There was a time when his company, Miramax, used to buy the movie rights to every big story published in New York's magazines. But the collapse of print advertising means few magazines can now pay for the kind of journalism that translates into screenplays, so they have no reason to keep him on side which is very interesting and revelatory and depressing. But the revelation that my Twitter timeline at least seems to be completely reeling from is a video clip, which we will get Dave to insert, of Courtney Love in 2005 on the red carpet when she's asked if she's got any advice for any young girl moving to Hollywood. And she said, if Harvey Weinstein invites you to a private party at the Four Seasons, don't go. Um, and Has she everyone also- seen that clip? It's, it's amazing. She also interestingly remarks that she could get libeled for saying it, which shows how commonly known it was that he bribed people for her silence. Do you have any advice for a young girl moving to Hollywood? Uh, I'll get libeled if I say it. Harvey Weinstein invites you to a private party in the four But a lot of the responses on Twitter were like, oh my God, everyone, you know, writing her off as like a drug addled crazy. Mess, yeah. Could eat their words. Totally. Because she was, she was right. One of my favourite things that has come out of this shit show is um, Emma Thompson is now this like matriarch of Hollywood but I find that quite depressing in itself because she's only been poor woman's only been considered the matriarch she's of a certain age like yeah it is that but she, she suddenly has so... become the, the mother just because she's hit a certain age I think it is that but I also think as well that she no she's quite protect like protectionist yeah she's also way. she's very invested in human rights as well as obviously women's rights but you know, I'm sure we all read the story last week about how Hayley Atwell, who, my God, is the most dreamy, gorgeous-looking woman ever, um, was in one of Harvey Weinstein's films, and he said to her, I've just been watching The Rushes, you need to lose weight. He was rude about her weight. And Emma Thompson was working on the film with her, and apparently she tore off a strip and said to Harvey Weinstein, if you ever say anything about the women's bodies on set, I will walk out. So I loved her for that. And then I also loved her on Newsnight. You know, she was very vocal about how endemic a problem this is. She was very succinct in how she described that it shouldn't have to get as bad and monstrous as the Harvey Weinstein case. She said this kind of sexual objectification and abuse is everywhere. And she said it doesn't matter whether it's that one man did it to one woman or whether in the case of Harvey Weinstein it's one man doing it to hundreds of women in all different guises and all different forms on a kind of scale of extremity. She's arguing that all should be called up, which I agree with, obviously. So when you describe him as being the tip of the iceberg, Mm. do you think there are others like that in your industry in Hollywood? Of course. Many? Many. To that degree? Maybe not to that degree. Do they have to all be as bad as him? To, to, to make it count? You know, is it, does it only count if you really have done it to loads and loads and loads of women, or does it count if you do it to one woman once? I think the latter. But I think it is interesting that this isn't something to be seen in like isolation of, of Hollywood. It is something that happens in every single industry, whether you work in the cinema or in the publishing world or in the fashion world. Uh, Lisa Armstrong, who's the fashion director of The Telegraph, wrote a really interesting piece this weekend where she said, you know, why are we still letting Terry Richardson take pictures? Why is he still doing Vogue covers? And I have to say, that consistently fucks me off, that big editors 
female editors are getting him to shoot covers when there are tons of disgusting stories about him. Mm. Loads about him wanking in front of like young assistants. It's a bit like Dov Charney, the um, American Apparel CEO, who did that. There's this like ridiculous clip of him walking around naked, like surrounded by women in pizza boxes. I, I think he was an extreme example, but systemic sexism absolutely exists in all industries. And as you say, it shouldn't have to be the massive things. Like my husband was really surprised when we were having dinner with some friends and I said, you know, every single woman will have an example of at some point where they felt uncomfortable. And he was really surprised when I said that every time I walk past a massive group of men, particularly if they are builders or people that are maybe used to having that kind of dialogue with a woman who walks down the street, I always tighten my coat shut. I always lower my eyes. I will always say a really chirpy, I'm fine, thanks, in case I get called to see you next Tuesday, which has happened before, or a bitch. So I don't, I really don't think that men realise that even in the minutest fundamental form, this is not something that's just Harvey Weinstein. This is not, you know, just women jumping on the bandwagon. No, um, no, it filters down, as you say, into nearly every part of life for most women, whether that be in the office or in the pub with friends or walking down the street, indeed. And something that Emma Thompson says in her Newsnight interview, which I think is really smart, is she's like, we need to examine toxic masculinity and, and, you know, toxic male entitlement. And I think the sooner that we look at that, the better. And also, that's the thing that everyone kept saying, is, it's, you know, why didn't these women come forward earlier? Like, somehow putting it on them, it's their responsibility to end this kind of abuse. And many people have said, well, why aren't we telling men this isn't okay? Why aren't we raising our sons so they know that this is okay? It's not, it's not the job of the woman to fix this. Did you see the embroidery thing that went round? Have you guys seen that on Instagram? And it says, it's embroidered boys will be boys. But mm. the boys has been crossed off, so it said boys will be held fucking accountable for their actions. That's Too I mean, right. Which is quite good. Yeah, it's, I think it's all about how you raise men and women. We had some great listener responses to our... We had a really sad reader question last week from a girl that had a anus horribilis, where she'd had the brutal double whammy of her father dying and her long-term relationship breaking up do you want to read a yeah we had loads of um lovely emails from our listeners kind of sharing similar stories and experiences and as ever we always try to kind of connect those people or or send those stories on continue like a penmanship do you remember that woman in australia she didn't say where she was in australia she said she was looking for friends so then we had people from all over australia being like i mean this woman could be 20 hours away but sure like she was in (laughs) brisbane she said but it was annoying because we had like we got so many emails from people being like, I'm in Melbourne or I'm in Sydney. And I'm like, you know, I, my geography's not good, but I don't think it's like... <laughs> no, Australia's big, Dolly. Yeah, I have heard this. I have heard this. <laughs> it's not like going from sort of Walthamstow to Camden. Without an Uber. <laughs> God, you and the Ubers, you're sticking the knife in with that. Um, <laughs> so we had some really lovely emails. We got one email, it was, it was quite long, so uh, I won't go into it now, but she kind of details a series of awful tragedies that happened to her in a very short space of time one of which was losing her relationship and then she's rebuilt her life and she's now much happier she has started her own business and I just wanted to read an extract from it just in case there's anyone here or at home who might be going through something similar I would never have done that while still in my relationship I would never have done it if I hadn't had my own Annis Horribilis I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't have reached the bottom of rock bottom and realised there was nothing to lose There is a beauty in being completely and utterly numb and broken because it evaporates fear and rational thinking and allows you to live life in the freest and purest way. Few people get to experience that. You're a lucky one. 
See all of this as a learning curve, a step towards the path you're meant to be on, a key to the door of exciting opportunities, the sacred chance to find yourself again, a platform to discuss, nurture and explore. You'll be fine, lovely. Cry when you need to, follow your heart and live by the motto, everything happens for a reason, much love. I think that's amazing that she still mm. believes in the power of everything happens for a reason because I might have lost my faith if I'd gone through what she has but there you go, a woman who really has gone through what this girl has and is, is further down the line and out the other side enough to be able to share not the positive nature of it because it's not positive but the positive strands maybe yeah. that you can pull out of going through something really hideous like that. So we love receiving those. As always, you can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at the Hilo Show. It's time for the top line, which is when one of us reads out 10 quickfire pieces of news this week, covering stories found from far and wide, from brows high and low. As is tradition, Dave, please hit us with a tune to intro the segment. Top line. Rejoice Bridget Jonas for sales of granny pants are up 25% report MS, whilst push-up bras have sunk by almost 50. Ooh. As someone currently clad in nude undercrackers that reach my navel and a sports bra, I'm thrilled and hope that I in some way helped this stat come to fruition. Undercrackers. Undercrackers, yeah. MP Tulip Sadiq and other Labour MPs are launching a campaign to include both parents' names on a child's passport. This came after Tulip was stopped at the UK border after a holiday to France and interrogated for 45 minutes over her toddler's surname, which is her father's and not her mother's. Ivana Trump has repeated her claim that she, not Melania, is in fact the First Lady, not of the USA, but of Trump. Well, I tell you, I am technically First Lady Trump. I was first wife. I don't know what Melania's problem is, she added. She's got to get over it. She is First Lady of America, but I am First Lady Trump. Why she'd want to claim Trump at any number, whether it's one or 487, no one's quite sure. Anorexia sufferers have found a new hashtag in which to find online pictures of underweight girls after Thinspiration was banned. The new hashtag, Bonespiration, has 140,000 Instagram images attached to it. A terrorist attack in Mogadishu on Saturday has left 300 people dead and hundreds more injured in what has been called Somalia's worst ever terror attack. The truck bomb was the work of the Islamist extremist group Al-Shabaab. Supersized chocolate bars and grab bag of sweeties are to be banned from hospitals as the NHS ramps up its fight against obesity. Hospital shops will only be allowed to stock confectionery, which is 250 calories and under, instructs Simon Stevens, the NHS chief executive. Hurricane Ophelia has hit the Irish Republic, leaving 120,000 homes without electricity and one woman sadly dead after a falling tree fell on her car during the storm. All schools have been closed. Q Eye Rolls is a Spanish company called Isla Bonita gets set to launch diet avocados later this month with less than 30% fat than regular avocados. This is not the first avocado light. The Slim Cardo already exists in the US. A man has changed his middle name via deed poll to Yorkshire Tea in homage to his favourite brew. Concrete sprayer Nathan Garner from Yorkshire drinks 20 cups of tea every day. I was at work one day and my mate Billy said, Chuff in hell, you drink so much of that stuff, you should change your name to Yorkshire Tea, says Nathan. I went on the internet and changed it. Everyone thinks it's right good. 
Donna Karen has given her first interview since being globally lambasted, lambasted, whichever you fancy, for her comments about Harvey Weinstein and his wife Georgina, whom she called really good people, and Weinstein's victims, who she suggested may have been dressing too sensually. She told WWD she was really tired, had been trying to avoid Harvey, but that it was inappropriate and she was embarrassed. And that was the top line. Support for this week's episode of the Hilo comes from Pop Chips, mine and Pandora's favourite snack that, by a stroke of luck, aren't that bad for you. Pop Chips are deeply satisfying without being deep fried, giving all the flavour of fried crisps with less than half the fat and under 100 calories per serving. Now, Pandora, we're in a circle of trust here. Why don't you tell the listeners about your Pop Chips habit? I eat them every (laughs) single day. Every single day. It would be verging on a problem if I felt guilty about it. I first discovered Pop Chips when I worked in an office a few years ago and they had a huge box of them delivered. I think I ate three packets in lieu of a meal for a solid fortnight, (laughs) every meal, which I would not recommend. But in moderation, as a snack, my God, they're delicious. (laughs) They come in 12 flavours. I particularly like the barbecue. What about you, Panda? I like to err on the more cautious side of the flavour scale. I don't live life in the barbecue fast lane like you, Dolly. I find the salt and pepper flavour particularly moorish. There's also new Buffalo Ranch flavoured ridged pop chips. Spice up your snack life with tangy hot buffalo sauce tempered with creamy cooling ranch. (laughs) Pandora is actually morphing into a giant pop chip before my eyes as we speak, so I better sign off now and see to her. Thanks very much to Pop Chips. I would 100% change my name to Yorkshire Tea. (laughs) I'm obsessed with Yorkshire Tea. Like I regularly, when I'm on a deadline... Google Yorkshire Tea merch. Why don't you get a Yorkshire Tea phone cover? My friend Laura's got one. I know your friend Laura's got one. That's what started this whole bloody thing. You can't find it. I can't find it. They must have done her a bespoke one. Can any of you find Dolly any Yorkshire Tea merch? I'll take anything. We're going to crowdsource. So if anyone can... Maybe some socks? I'd love some Some socks. I'd love some tea towels. I'd love a t-shirt. Bedding. Bedding? (laughs) Really? I'm not better than the cushion. I'm not... Oh, Christ. (laughs) That, you still tweet about that cushion. I tweeted once. I didn't get much pickup, sadly. <laughs> um, diet avocados make me despair. It's so ridiculous, isn't it? I don't understand that. It's like diet cake or something. But I also just hate, like... Actually, that's not like diet cake, because they're full of good, good fats. Yeah, it's good fats. But also, beyond that, I hate the mixing of genres at the moment with food. It's like, it's healthy, or it's, a, or it's not. Like, don't, like, you know when you see pasta now, and it's made of, like, grass root or something? Or, like, mushroom... I, t- I tried it, like, Quite zero... Like pasta, actually. No, it's... But it's... I don't... I think you just... Yeah, if I you have commit. pasta, you have pasta. If not, have a salad. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Did you um, enjoy Ivana Trump as well? The sass on Ivana Trump. <laughs> but also, it's so funny, as you said, like, if I had been married to Donald Trump, I would just be like, Donald, uh, who? Donald what? Oh, no, don't remember that. That was just some other ginger guy. Anyway... Did you see his statement, actually, about Harvey Weinstein? I'd been waiting to see what he would say because I just wondered if it was a bit, you know, pot, kettle and black, the whole thing. And he did say, having known Harvey Weinstein for a very long time, this does not surprise me one bit, which was a strangely classy statement from yeah, Donald but, Trump. But when you pair that with the fact that this is the man who told someone that you could grab women's pussies and they don't mind if you're a star, I mean, that's the fucking founding ethos of Harvey Weinstein. Maybe that's why he's not surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Takes one to know one. Speaking of Weinstein, because sorry, clearly we're still not over it, we wanted to discuss something as a topic this week 
that happened in the aftermath, I suppose, when it was sort of resounding. At the Amphar Gala on Friday, which is a ritzy black tie charity event in LA. So the comedian James Corden made a series of controversial jokes about Harvey Weinstein. To a chorus of loud groans, he said, the night was so beautiful that Harvey Weinstein has already asked tonight up to his hotel to give him a massage. He then went on to say, Harvey Weinstein wanted to come tonight, but he'll settle for whatever potted plant is closest. Um, the fallout was pretty instant. Rose McGowan called James Corden a motherfucking piglet, whilst <laughs> Italian actress and another victim of Harvey's, Asia Argento, tweeted, shame on this piglet. There's a theme here. Um, I, and ev- I have to say, do you feel a bit bad for the old piglet thing? Or do so you do think- I. Yeah. He's lost a little weight. And, um, and everyone who grunted with him. Uh, James has since apologised for his jokes, saying in a statement released on Twitter, to be clear, sexual assault is no laughing matter. I was not trying to make light of Harvey's inexcusable behaviour, but to shame him, the abuser, not his victims. I'm truly sorry to anyone offended. This was never my intention. Delandra, what do you make of this? Uh, I'm in two minds about this, really, because I think I understand why people might have felt uncomfortable. I normally feel uncomfortable with that kind of humour. I'm not someone who loves very dark, taboo, you know, close-to-the-edge humour. It's not even good with poo jokes. I mean, I hate poo jokes. I know, it's one of life's great sadnesses. And Pandora is so scatological. I'm not as scatological as many people I know. Well, the people you know must be Beavis and Butthead because <laughs> you are pretty scatological shit shovelers. Yeah. But no, I don't really go in for that. You know, when you're a teenager and everyone's doing the sort of dead baby jokes and all that stuff, I've sort of pretended to find it I mean, funny. that's a leap from a shit joke. <laughs> no. But, you know, there are some people who really get off. approve of dead baby jokes. But there are some people who really yeah. get off on that kind of, you know, really dark, transgressive humour. It's not for me. I prefer sort of only fools and horses. But, 40 you know, Towers. 40 Towers, exactly. Bit of, 12 episodes bit of, of 40 Towers. No, no harm in it. So, but yeah, I, so I don't... I, I understand that you might feel uncomfortable, but I just... I don't think anyone can call him out and say, you're not allowed to make these jokes. I think the joke is at the expense of Weinstein and not the victims, crucially. I don't think they're particularly funny, and I don't think they're sophisticated jokes, granted. And I don't really like James Corden as a man, but I don't think we can live in a world where we tell comedians what they are and aren't allowed to make jokes about in the wake C- of a tragedy. C- censorship, I suppose. I think way. it's, you know, it's literally their job. And I think life is so ridiculous and so tragic and so unfair. I think for many of us, not all of us, granted, but for many of us, the only way that you can cope with it is by laughing at it. And I don't know if I'm slightly changing my stance on the whole, like, too soon thing. I don't know if too soon exists anymore. But wouldn't it have been that funny if in nine months' time he goes, hey, guys, remember that thing? Well, exactly. You know, I think, I think the whole shockingness of a lot of good comedy is the immediacy of it, is the kind of the brazenness to really highlight the, the tragic and the salacious and the ridiculous yeah, that's and sublime. Yeah, that's exactly, that's what makes it useful. And I think people can reserve the right to, to, to feel uncomfortable and they'd certainly reserve the right to, to call James Gordon a poor little piglet or, you know, find him odious. But I don't think that, that you can say that, that he's not allowed to make a joke about something, as I said, when he's laughing at Weinstein. He's not laughing down, he's laughing up. 
and that's yeah I think that's the crucial difference and I think in a time where everyone's kind of reeling and outrage and Mm. shock and disgust and this kind of wonderful camaraderie in a way I understand why you would want to comment on that and why that might be an empowering thing I also think it's not it's not unusual for comedians to tell distasteful jokes at award ceremonies. I mean, every year, don't you read about someone getting it really wrong? I mean, Russell Brand springs to mind. James Corden's definitely got form already in this arena. There were a couple that I was jotting down earlier when I was trying to remember the ones that had really horrified me. I don't know if anyone was Jimmy Carr joking about Oscar Pistorius in 2014, where he says something about how annoyed he could see why Oscar had been so annoyed to like have to wait to use the loo. And Frankie Boyle is obviously one of one of the worst. He's he's renowned for having distasteful humour, and he made a joke in um, I think it was 2009 about concentrating on his charity work, where he said, "I've been helping teenagers that have been sexually abused find their way out of my house," which is pretty fucking terrible. <laughs> Yeah, see that, I, I mean, I really, really hate Frankie Boyle, it must be said. I really hate him. Because he's still on mainstream TV, because we're in such a PC world now. And his, yeah. as in, like, rightfully so. And his brand yeah. of jokes. I just like, think as well, a man, a white man of such great privilege, you know, that's when I do have a problem with bad taste humour, because I think he is laughing down. And he's done that before. He's done it about Rebecca Adlington and her looks. He's done about Katie Price's severely disabled yes, child. I remember that. Like, that I have a problem with, and that I think we have a right to censor and monitor. I'm not interested in kind of cruel humour that preys on the vulnerable, but I think a comedian mocking a vile sexual predator in the wake of a national incident when the mood is of anger and people coming together... I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. Would I, would I, would I have preferred for it to be in the hands of someone perhaps more woke or sophisticated or responsible... A, com- a comedic mind than James Corden yes I would but, but I don't Cor- have a problem with it full stop but James Corden was the one there at that time yeah exactly I actually wasn't outraged by his jokes I have to be honest and I, d- I imagine that would probably piss some people off because the Twitter response has been largely horrified by his comments he was obviously forced to apologise but I actually found them a blessed relief after the disgusting and um, devastating revelations of last week I, I think that nothing should be, be beyond um, comedy, depending on how it's packaged, obviously. Yeah. The delivery is everything. But that the best way to diminish a man, particularly someone as powerful and egotistic as Harvey Weinstein, is to laugh at him. And I found that line about the potted plant really powerful because it sort of highlights the absolute patheticness of it. You know, this is a man that wanked into a potted plant. He saw a woman that f- was terrified of him and found him, like utterly disgusting and he tugged one off into a plant like to me there is nothing more Mm. revolting and pathetic and for James Corden to have highlighted it for me was a really effective way Mm. of of drilling in the like absolute fallacy of this man and I think comedy is meant to make you question things sometimes and it is meant to make you feel uncomfortable it is meant to expose indecent truths it is meant to be transgressive and it's also meant to vocalise the stuff that you've been thinking but you don't have the language for like that's wouldn't dare say or that you wouldn't dare say and that's the responsibility and great privilege of the comedian and that's why it's so fucking hard to be a comedian and that's why you have to trust them with these unbelievably delicate topics to be able to steer it and say the stuff that everyone's thinking i'd also say if you consider comedy and art which i think a lot of people don't anymore i think i think they've forgotten art form art is is divisive like all great artists are divisive and often there's like a really uncomfortable truth at the heart of their 
subject matter, whether it's comedy or it's a painting or it's a musical lyric or something like that. And I don't think that James Corden making jokes about Harvey Weinstein was the worst thing about what Harvey Weinstein did. (laughs) Harvey Weinstein was the worst thing about what Harvey Weinstein did. And, And my husband, like you, is not a fan of James Corden. I actually find him quite funny because I'm base and vulgar and obvious but he but he doesn't but he does agree that the ability of him to tell these jokes is essential and I think we're in really tricky water if we don't allow our our comedians to 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 make not make light of but to make jokes about things that are scary and horrible as much as things that are trivial and um, joyful and and jovial because there's not there's only so much depth you can plunder from well, only fools and horses. <laughs> I don't actually watch any fools and horses. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's so nuanced and case by case. And I think it's where the joke is coming from. And it is annoying because it is bum out that a woman didn't say it. I would be laughing I said bum out. Yes. Quite a teenage thing to say, isn't it? don't know why I said that. Anyway, it is disheartening <laughs> that, that it wasn't a woman saying this because... Not that I don't think James Corden or any man doesn't have a right to make those jokes. I just think it would have been so much more searing and powerful and funny had it come from the mouth of a woman who has been on the receiving end of any kind of objectification, silencing, oppression or abuse, which, let's face it, is all of womankind. I bet they'll do it on Saturday Night Live. They've got those, that amazing roster of female comedians on Saturday Night Live, but we obviously don't get it over here, so yeah. I never get the... Well, I did, I did think, I was like, wouldn't it have been so much better? And I'm sure the, the commentary and the jokes themselves would have been so much better had they been in the hands of a Sarah Silverman. But she wasn't hosting it. He was. And it was, it was a quintessentially Hollywood event. It was... Yeah, if he hadn't, if he hadn't mentioned it, it, would, it. Have, it that, would have been... He'd have got damned, I think, for not mentioning it. I don't know. I just... I think it's like... It, it would have been... You would have felt the absence of it, I think. Well, something he's been criticised for a lot is that he didn't pay homage or due diligence to the women who did suffer Mm. at the hands of Harvey. Do you think he should have commended their bravery? Certainly I do. I don't think it was the appropriate platform when he was being paid to be an entertainer and host Mm. that event. You know, I wish that all men would come out publicly particularly men in the public eye and either say on television or on Twitter, you know, to condemn the the acts of this man and these acts more generally. And indeed, some of them have. Colin Firth has. A lot of them haven't, as we know, and Mm. their silence is kind of palpable. Grace Dent wrote a very good piece on this subject and she erred more on the side that it wasn't his place to make those jokes as a man who's never experienced that kind of day-to-day rigmarole that women have to experience, which I understand. And she also raised the question, which I hadn't thought of before, where apparently they, they might have a friendship, which I do think that's a context that changes it slightly. But she also does say that we can't censor him, which obviously I agree with. I don't know if I think the context of that changes. I think you can be friends with... You can have an ill-advised friendship, learn something awful about that person, and she's not to continue that friendship. Like so, me. Yeah, you know, if you, if you choose to be friends with someone knowing that about them, then yes, I think you're a poor example of a human. Mm. But I don't think that just because he maybe had an ill-advised, probably quite, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Mm. I, 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 I don't know if I necessarily think it muddies the water unless he knew what was going on. It's a good piece by Grace. She says it's too soon and that 
James has misunderstood the level of anger. And as she says, not that many people necessarily find masturbating into a plant pot funny. But that's the thing, I didn't find, just because it was a joke, I don't think you necessarily find it funny. And, and I didn't find that funny. I just found it tremendously effective as a tool to remind us how disgusting and ridiculous the whole saga was, mm. the whole scandal, the whole edifice that he had created for the last... God, when was the first... 30 years? Mm. So probably 30 years. All I can hope is that these crap jokes of James Gordon's and the groany response means that next time at these sorts of events they'll book a really fucking great female comedian. Uh, but then I'd also like to point out that I think that there's a real... There's a gendered double standard here with women and men when it comes to bad taste jokes. Like, let's think of Kathy Griffin and she held up Donald Trump's head in an SNL sketch, which was clearly a very silly knockabout slapstick sketch. You know, she was hung out to dry. She was publicly shamed. She lost massive contracts. I do think James Corden's career will live another day somehow. But I think it should, if I'm honest, because what, what he said, they would have said on SNL in a heartbeat. Like, they, they will do some kind of skit where they say something similar. You know, the stuff they say about Donald Trump, Mm. They're obviously, and he's, you know, the president for, for better or worse. Um, but, you know, Harvey Weinstein, they will definitely do that. I think it was, I actually think, I would say that James Corden is quite divisive anyway. Clearly people have a problem with the piglet. <laughs> but I, 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 I agree what you're saying, that women are um, held much more accountable when, yes. they tell, when they tell Paul Jokes. I was interested that I hadn't read any op-eds by any comedians defending the role of the comic because I thought that there would have been people writing pieces for you know newspapers or websites saying kind of this is our this is our art yeah let us make it I hope that in the next week we will see someone not just yeah. not just from male comedians but from from female as well so Catherine Ryan Sharon Horgan that's their Shappy Corsandi Jennifer Saunders if you can hear me get writing yeah it'd be good to hear the other side of the story I think Cultural overload. Do you know what that is? You might not know what the term is, but I bet you know what the definition is. It's the feeling you get when you're reading the Sunday papers and you have them all spread out on your carpet and you have a sense of panic because you're like, I have to read every single last word of this. Maybe even those weird kind of catalogues that come in there with the weird cardigans. The like Andy Pandy nightcaps. Oh, always the Andy Absol- Pandy nightcaps. They're always nightcaps. in the Telegraph. They are absolutely... I always think it's an April Fool, and I'm like, nope, still October. But yeah, it's that feeling that you have when you're talking about box sets with people, and you realise you have these kind of big gaps in your box set cultural canon. So for me, I, I mean, I think about this every single day. I haven't watched one episode of Sopranos, or Mad Men, or The West Wing, or... Oh, wow. <laughs> Someone is very upset. <laughs> Orange is the New Black. Veep. I haven't watched Veep. I haven't watched House of Cards. I haven't watched The Good Wife. I haven't watched The Good Wife. It's so stressful. Have you watched Stranger Things? I watched one episode. I hated it. It was like Jumanji. <laughs> you loved Stranger Things, didn't you? I know, you? you are such an old soul. What's a box set you liked? Aside from Transparent. <laughs> um, Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> uh, what was one that I liked? Yeah, I'm pretty hooked on Transparent. I've already watched it twice through. So it's the panicked feeling that you get when you have kind of book pile-ups by your bed. So we were inspired to talk about peak culture 
saturation um, after we read a piece in the November issue of Esquire by the culture editor Miranda Collins. And the title is, You Do Not Have Time to Read This and I Barely Had Time to Write It. And it was born out of Miranda returning from holiday and seeing 81 books on her desk. And she worked out that it would take her 34 days to read them, assuming each book was an average length of 300 pages, not accounting for sleep or meals. And this really made me laugh because I have a towering pile of books by my bed, which grows weekly when I buy three or four secondhand books from Amazon or we get sent very kindly, thank you, books from publishers um, which are coming out next year and as soon as I read it I knew it would be something that would really resonate with you Dolly because you stockpile all the articles and books and things you want to watch and then you sort of have to like lock yourself away and just like drown and drench (laughs) in it all at once. I know I find it so I'm so slow though you're so fast. Yeah, no, I loved this piece. It really resonated with me. I also loved at the beginning, it's, she has this sort of meta nod and she's like, I know that when you're reading this, you're already wondering what else you should be reading. Yeah, and yeah. And I was I like, I that have feeling. that feeling when you just start, especially if it's a long read and you're like, oh, should I be committing to this? Is there something in the New Yorker I should be reading instead? But yeah, it's a phenomenon, the pain of which I feel massively, um, particularly when you have quite widespread interest. You have the widest so funny I don't think I do but maybe I do crochet to racing to I don't, I don't rock climbing <laughs> I do embroider actually exactly um, so random but you know I'm, obviously I'm a journalist so I like being on top of current affairs an embroidery journalist ish <laughs> for embroidery weekly um, I like reading good journalism obviously here in, and in America I also, I also work in TV so I like watching the kind of TV that people are talking about I love music, I love live music, so I like going to gigs. I love old music, so I like going through all the back catalogues of my favourite bands from the 60s and 70s, and then I like finding out who their favourite bands were. And then you like to learn it by the guitar and send it And then I play guitar, and then I like recording it and sending it to voice notes to poor old Panda. Um, And then I like, you know, sinking my teeth into some new bands. It's kind of cooking. I love cooking. I like going to new restaurants. I like, you know, trying out new cookbooks. (laughs) And it is... Oh, I feel a bit panicked, actually, (laughs) saying all that. It's really overwhelming. I actually had this uh, very neurotic thing that I did in my mid-twenties when uh, death anxiety was really gripping me hard and fast at this point. And I suddenly was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have enough time to read all the books I want to read. Oh, God, I have that all the time. And I'm two years older than you, so I've got even less time. Oh, you're not going to like this. I sat and calculated. I thought, if I read one book a week from now until death, um, if I die at 85, which is optimistic, I worked out how many books it is, and it, it's not a lot. It's not a lot, How guys. many is it? It's thousands. It's not tens of thousands. So you should really start making a spreadsheet now. Yeah. yeah. Although that I doesn't did... account for the new ones coming out. I know, and I did think as well, hopefully I'll retire. And during retirement... You say that, but our generation apparently are never going to afford to retire because we think a pension is putting away £10 a month. And then yeah. breaking into it when you need to get a black cab because your phone doesn't have Uber. Just <laughs> something I bet you do. Yeah, it's, I think it's really prescient to be talking about this because I was having dinner with some friends on Friday night and it's something I get asked a lot is, you know, how do you read so much? And the subtext of that is often, what are you not doing yeah, yeah. When, when you're reading? And one of my friends worked out that when she's at a farmer's market and learning new recipes and cooking up like elaborate roasts, that is the time when I am reading, which is very true. I often am. But more accurately, I'm really obsessed with reading, so I have definitely cut 
other things out like I don't know anything about music like at all I listen to Classic FM I might read like a long read on a on a musician who's like a pop culture figure like Taylor Swift but you know I would never read like an essay on Leonard Cohen because I, I actually can't name his song and I don't know what he his song is one did he do more than one <laughs> or what he looks like you know I love magazines and newspapers and on an almost fanatical basis I spent so much money on them in a way that no one else I know does but you know in all honesty I'm not getting to all the exhibitions I want to I hate ballet and the opera I seem to miss the movie before it even comes out and I think for me with reading a lot of it is having if I don't I get this real professional FOMO Mm. where I feel like better journalists and better podcasters than me will know something I don't know or maybe there's like a hidden career nugget in it that like I'll be able to like double my salary if I like read the whole (laughs) article maybe there's something in it that I can learn it's funny that whole That time, how do you find the time thing, the time management question. Today, a journalist asked me this morning, uh, God, it looks like I'm just trying to pat myself on the back here and get a compliment in. I'm going to do it. Um, I don't even know what's coming. Well, she just very kindly said, you're so prolific. You seem to work so much and you seem to have a lot of stuff everywhere. (laughs) Um, And I said, thank you so much. She said, how do you do it? And there was a pause and I thought about it and I was like, I don't date anymore. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't have sex. <laughs> and let me tell you guys, the minute that you cut something like that out of your life, or it's like I remember reading... It has to be quite a large hobby to make a difference, doesn't it? Well, you know me. Um, <laughs> I remember reading Lena Dunham saying that someone said to her, how do you get so much done? Because she reads so much, and obviously she produces so much. But she said it's very simple. She said, I don't go to the gym and I don't go out drinking. I don't go to the gym. My husband goes to the gym every day. It's a stupid little habit that I wish he'd break. And it does mean that he reads, you know, 10 words a year. So, yeah, going to the gym would probably be better for me. I think a good way to prioritise stuff is to work out why you're doing it. So this is what I'm trying to ask myself more and more. Am I doing it to enrich my soul and my kind of knowledge and my being? Or am I doing it because... I think a load of other cool people are doing it and I want to bring it up. I don't want to be Bridget Jones saying, isn't it terrible about Chechnyar? <laughs> I do that. Ollie and I do that to each other all the time. I <laughs> am guilty like of it, though. I really am. Um, but I think that second pressure, the Chechnyar pressure, is... is That's can, what we should call it. It's very, it can be very choking. Laura Snapes, who's a friend of the high lows, she's a very brilliant journalist, she wrote a piece about this very subject for my newsletter, The Dolly Mail, a while back. Um, I'm just going to read an extract from it because I found it very funny. She's talking about uh, reading a book of essays of cultural criticism, even when she wasn't that well-versed on the culture being criticised in the first place. <laughs> About a quarter of the way into the book is a giddy, fragmented essay about the work of poet Frank O'Hara. I'm sure it's a beautiful essay if you understand it. I've read a lot about Frank O'Hara and imagine he's someone I'd quite like if I actually bothered to read any of his poems instead of just reading what cool people think about them. A few pages into it, following similarly dense pieces on baths, never read him, and Eve Sedgwick, ditto, sounds great though, I realised what a massive idiot I was being, attempting to leap into the intellectual deep end without much of a grounding in the basics, all because I wanted to emulate some cool women on the internet. That's definitely really freeing, I think, when you let yourself not engage with something that you you know you know nothing about, and, yeah. you're, not, and you're not interested in that way. I was really relieved, actually, when I abandoned Tom Hanks's book, having not read a few of those stories because can I just say I'm proud of you for that because well, normally I am welded yeah I'm, I am a not a commitment phobe 
I am committed. That's yeah, it. you are so you're codependent. She's so good. She'll say, oh, I'm not really enjoying the book, and I'll just put it, put it down. Then you're like, I have to read it. So I'm but so I happy you found this freedom. And do you now. know what? I know that I'll probably get this weird pang when I read. I think it comes out this week, and I bet there'll be lots of bit you know things on it saying. The story, there were some stories I loved, but that's the thing with short stories. There are some you don't love as much. And I, and I bet I'll think, oh my God, I should have enjoyed those ones more. But it, it did feel really freeing to let myself skip some of those things. And I think it can slightly become, when you give a recommendation now, telling someone about something you loved, when there used to be like a real kind of dearth of, like 10 years ago, if I was a teenager now, I would love it so much because... We didn't have any, you know, there was no BuzzFeed, there no. wasn't The Cut, there wasn't Man Repeller, there wasn't Refinery29, there were none of these websites. You know, to find a really good bit of, like, pop culture criticism, which is my favourite, was nigh impossible. So there was a time when giving a friend a recommendation was, like, a really loving thing. Mm. And now it's not so much an act of love, it's, like, a sort of act of passive aggression because what you're saying to that friend is I know you've already got loads that you need to do but I'm just going to like add this onto your towering your towering pile I feel like this is aimed at me Pandora (laughs) no but I've (laughs) but I've stopped doing it with you actually now and what because I knew you always had so much stuff that you were invested in reading and you weren't invested in necessarily reading something that I wanted you to read and so I'll send you something now when I know it's something you're going to love not mm. just something I've loved and I find that much more effective and very altruistic of me actually as well well done <laughs> friend of the year award um, I think a lot of neurosis around kind of culture overload boils down to the fact that so little of what we do now is a private act you know reading should be the most private act ever particularly if it's fiction it's a very creative thing to read pages and read words and create build worlds in your head and it should be a very intimate act but you know I'm guilty of it I'm the person who when I'm reading a book I'll Instagram a page or I'll tweet the front cover I tell you what we're reading every week I know but something that I try to keep in mind and this is the first and last time I'll quote French philosopher everyone um, is Michel de Montaigne said Does knowing mean nothing to you unless someone else knows that you know it? Isn't that so poignant? Mm. Because I think that I definitely have been guilty of that. And it's something that I try to remember now when it comes to ingesting culture. Just to remember that if I'm reading or watching or listening to something and I'm doing it for the sake of being able to drop it into conversation or because I think I should or because other cool people are doing it, it's just going to be the most joyless act. So... I try and remember that now when it comes to how I, how I use my time to, to enjoy culture. It reminds me of that cliche um, when you say about kind of reading becoming a public act of if you didn't Instagram it, did it actually happen? Mm. And on that note, actually, I, did, I found going on this Instagram detox I did for a few weeks that we spoke about in the last episode, The Hilo, really freeing in that sense. And I don't mean from like posting a picture, but... All, I don't do Instagram stories, for example, and I know that that's probably freeing up time for me to read and do, like, soul-replenishing activities. And another thing as well that I've realised is if I consciously take less pictures, I have less things to fanny around with, less to crop or to put filters on or to decide that I might post that, you know, maybe next week when there's not much going on. Like, if you sort of... Active disengagement has allowed me to become more actively engaged Mm, elsewhere elsewhere. and um, a box set as you say can become a sort of onerous chore like I've had the latest series of transparent on my to-do list for weeks and I feel really guilty about abandoning 
the recent series of Orange is the New Black, even though, you know, I wasn't enjoying it. And I feel a bit stressed about Stranger Things coming. And I imagine the OA must be due another another series. And this is a problem. When you see a series you like, it's not like a fucking book. There's another one coming. And you know it's going to come because it was good. Remember you in Suits? That was a dark time. I, I beat Suits. But that's, like Tetris. that's probably better for your mental health that you can only watch one every two weeks. There were periods where you and Ollie I just realised there must be a new one, actually. You and Ollie, it was like house arrest for a bit. It's when you have to get through it and you're like, you know, it's so late and you've got to get up in like 20 minutes. <laughs> but you have to get to the end. Yes. It's terrible. Um, I think Laura Snapes' conclusion of that piece that I mentioned earlier... It's a very nice take-home for all of us when it comes to the subject of cultural fatigue. I've made lists of the things that I want to find out about that I'd probably be embarrassed to share because they're so foundational. I found a copy of Zadie Smith's White Teeth on my bookshelf, which I bought in a charity shop eight years ago. Turned out that this well-known classic that everyone has read (laughs) is a well-known classic for a reason. Pretty great, Zadie. I listened to Leonard Cohen for the first time and was absolutely fucking thunderstruck. His one song. His one song, Pandora, yeah. I got a book of Frank O'Hara poems for my birthday. They're amazing, but I'm not rereading that essay until I figure out why I like them so much. I'm really with her on that, actually, is look at the kind of foundational. Like, I just, one of the books that I bought off Amazon Marketplace in, like, the last week was Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, because Mm. I read all about Malcolm Gladwell yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. But, I, but I, I've never read any of his books and it's so fundamental and foundational. And I think the answer is, you know, find what's right for you, saturate yourself in what you want to be saturated. It sounds a bit sort of grim, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> saturation. And there's a lot, you're actually quite good at, for all of your like myriad hobbies, you're quite good at eschewing stuff that you know like, you know, I have passively aggressively sent you stuff enough times to know that you're never going to read it. And you're quite good at eschewing the stuff that you know that you won't enjoy. For example, the entire phenomena, despite having worked on a reality TV show, you've never watched an episode of Keep Up, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And you have no... I have no interest in the Kardashians. Do you remember when you asked what Giggy Hadid did? Yeah. So, but she's got no curiosity about that. And I really no. admire that because I am so nosy about everything. And maybe it's about, you know narrow casting your nosiness and being nosy about what you're really interested in because only you can kind of be discerning about like your own taste and also ultimately the only person who gives a shit about what you're reading or watching is you exactly no one's talking about it, i don't think maybe they are <laughs> it's just our whole show <laughs> I think it's time for Ask the Hilo Live. Should we kick off? Here we go. Question number one. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So to give a praise of that really interesting question, an email goes around an office where there are a series of events. Women are offered a women's only event on female empowerment. The men are not invited. The men are angry about not being invited because they also would maybe like to go and say that if there was a men's 
men's only event, then, you know, that would be controversial. What are your thoughts? I'm all for it. I think men who throw their toys out of the pram just aren't fucking getting the point. Like, most boardrooms, whether men and women are in there or not, are an all men's room. Like, that's just how it is. Like, women and uh, women don't earn as much money as men across the board drastically. There's still a massive gap. Women aren't listened to. They aren't heard. There's a huge confidence gap professionally. Mm-hmm. I understand why women might feel like they need a space that's safe, where they're not going to be spoken over, where they feel confident that they can be heard and seen and taken seriously. And I think any guy who doesn't get that, it's that old Rennie Edo Lodge thing. You know, you can't be, you can't, women can't be sexist towards men because we don't have the power to to change their lives, whereas they do for us. So, you know, I really hope, I dream of one day our daughters, granddaughters, living in a world that's balanced and equal enough that we don't need to have women's only spaces, that women feel so so themselves and heard and seen and taken seriously in the workplace and indeed life in general that they can be in mixed environments and feel confident but we're not there yet so i'm yeah i'm kind of divided on that one i'm not a massive fan of female only workspaces there's a new one that's just been set up in the uk read about it in style i think it was last weekend or the weekend before i was talking to some people on twitter about it i personally don't find those that progressive but I am a fan of women-only spaces in, in the context of, like, a talk on female empowerment. Like, I don't think it's particularly useful or relevant for a man to be there to learn about how to be empowered as a woman. You know, I think there are ways that he could learn about female empowerment, and that would probably be by watching women become empowered rather than going to a talk where he can learn how to be empowered as a, as a woman. I don't really see how that tra- transmutes. But in terms of female only events gathering momentum I'm not a massive fan and that's actually more born out of personal experience I've always worked in like heavily dominated female offices like every job I can think of you know the most recent one when I was at the Sunday Times style there were 17 women and two men in the office and that's always been my experience of work and I would have loved to have worked in a space where there were more men so in that re- for that and I think that would have actually positively impacted the office as well so that's why I'm not a massive fan of like the 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 workspaces emerging just for women but in terms of that specific course I think obviously it's not particularly relevant for a man to be going to it I, yeah. I so so I think it depends on the I suppose it's nuanced. I think it depends. Maybe on they want a male empowerment one. Those poor old blokes, they need a bit of empowering, don't they? Sorry, Dave. <laughs> Any other questions? I can see some women looking at their friends going, go on, say it. I can see hungry eyes because we've had the food boat. It's they very haven't. delicious, the food boat. No more questions? Thank you. Oh, there we go. I knew there was one. <laughs> Oh, that's very kind. (laughs) So someone just asked us when we realised that Pandoli slash the Hilo show wasn't total shit. She didn't say that. She was much nicer. I know, don't worry. Don't worry, don't worry. Just just gassing. So I personally am like slightly ashamed of Pandoli because I think of it as like a real, like our sort of 
really poor pilot season. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. It's like the nurse. I can't notes. listen to old episodes. Dolly sometimes likes to talk about them nostalgically and it makes me want to vom. Um, but I think we learn a lot about what we were good at, what we weren't good at. The high-low... Do you know what? We've been really like pleasantly surprised by how how well it's done. I have to be honest, because I hate it when people are like, oh, is anyone listening to it? I didn't realise, because obviously we're here. So I've been like absolutely thrilled, because when we started doing the first podcast, it was... I was actually bored in my job and I was trying to think of ways to make it more interesting. I was trying to think of ways of working with Dolly. And so I creepily devised a formula by which I thought, well, we could do a podcast together. So it became a way of actually just joining forces because we knew how much we kind of enjoyed the thoughts of one another. And then obviously we got to a point where we could actually start to make money off the thoughts of one another, which was the most thrilling bit of all. But it hasn't been easy. I think when you have a passion project, I have a real pet hate. Dolly's better at this than me, but I hate it when people go, is it so much fun? Are you having like so much fun doing it? And I always say, well, I have fun lying in the bath or like eating food. Like, you know, this is work. It requires a lot of prep, a lot of sweat, (laughs) a lot of Twitter. It's the hardest work of of any job I've done. It's, you know, it's a lot of work. So um, to be able to turn it into a business. Don't go Karen Brady on me again. Well, <laughs> Dolly calls me Karen Brady because I handle all the accounts. And which mine. Is stressful. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of work. But um, I'd say we probably realised when we started working with sponsors and we had to look at contracts and I had to be aware of small print because obviously I do the contracts. I mean, can you imagine if I was She does the lose? emails, though. I do the emails. She does the emails. The email box is a... Um, is a wild jungle. And I sometimes get the coffee. <laughs> You're lovely in other ways. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. For me, it was when Sadiq Khan started following us. Oh, Twitter. yes, when he followed us on Twitter. God, you lost your proverbial. In all honesty, I think it's both Pandora and I have been... This will sound very cheesy. I'm going to go... It's true. Sisterhood? <laughs> no, no, I think it's... We're always astounded at the emails that we get in the inbox every week. Yes, that's true. That's, that's how we knew and it was. It, I mean, it's a lot of emails. It's a lot of people writing to us. We reply to every single one. Um, Dolly does. I do. While Karen Brady's saving the arse of the podcast. And it's people sharing their experiences, being very emotionally honest. It's something Pandora and I take very seriously. Starting those dialogues in between different listeners who have, again, shared experiences is something... It just feels very powerful. And I think people... I think for me, when I realised that we were perhaps hitting, like, a good-sized portion of mostly women, but also some men, was when the people writing in were people who were nothing like us. And that was always my desire with this, is not just to speak to other young, British, white, blonde, privileged, privately educated. I mean, I think both of us really wanted to reach beyond that. So to hear from people who are from different places, who are of a different sexual orientation, who um, are a different skin colour, who have different politics, everything like that, when we're connecting with those different people is when I think we realise, okay, well, we must be doing doing something right if, if we can capture the attention of a lot of different humans. Also, lest we forget the moment where Pandora and I were walking down the street in Belsize Park... And we, and we were chased by a woman like Beatlemania. <laughs> she ran down the street behind us. And then she grabbed Pandora. 
was extraordinary. It wasn't as dramatic. It was so odd. And you were like, you jumped away from her. I jump at everything. She (laughs) might be here, Dolly. (laughs) She then apologised, and I think think she's a bit pissed. We've all been there. We've all been there. Um, Is that all the questions? No, here we go. So, talking a lot about how we've had, like, imposter syndrome or lots of other women have had imposter syndrome or doubted themselves in their Mm. careers or their jobs and do we have a specific low point that we could revisit for everyone's pleasure? No, I'm joking. Do we have any low low points in our career that we kind of, that we learnt from or we could share tips from? I can think of one. What's yours? Well, I mean, every week, you know, every week it's me calling you at some point saying I'm not handling this, I'm really stressed out. You know, I'm someone who, this is the thing, I think people are told that the only model that we have in the workplace in the workplace is they workplace. have to the workplace um, is they have to be this sort of like boss bitch like cool lady who's like you know like on four hours sleep and just coffee in the shower and just whatever <laughs> and like I'm just not like that like I cannot handle stress and I've only realised that recently like it's not a natural thing I'm not a boss bitch lady like I can have, I do have lots and lots of projects going on at the same time and I will always find it difficult. And personally, I think if you can understand that, I used to pretend like I can just fly by the hoof and I can just like go out for drinks and not really look after myself and, you know, have three hours sleep. I can't do that. I can't, if I want to have the work on that I want to have on, if I want to have the amount of pressure on me that I want I desire it I have to be really strict with myself I have to be very honest with my friends about where I am I have to be emotionally honest with them I have to raise the red flag if I say I'm drowning a bit having a bit of a stress out can I call you um I need to eat well I need to sleep lots and I need to not (laughs) get pissed basically I love all the mixed metaphors and efforts like fly by the hoof fly by the hoof isn't a thing as I said it I was like will I get away with that no it's not I can't even think what you've mixed what's he what's fly by the hoof what's the hoof bit oh on the hoof when you do something on the hoof or you fly by the seat of your pants right okay thank Um, you (laughs) so mine would probably be when I was fired from I think it was my first ever job trying to think if I'd done anything before that Oh, yeah, I had done something before that. Okay, so my second ever job, when I was an intern at Nameless Publication, I'm not going to give the, the juicy name, and I got fired from an internship, which I've been doing for like six months, and which I've been doing very well for, I suppose, a misunderstanding, something that I have never really understood and really taunted myself over for years. Every job I went to, I would say, oh, I was fired from this internship, and they would literally laugh in my face and be like, Oh, love, <laughs> you haven't seen anything in media yet if you think being fired from an internship is something you have to worry about. And it's still, when I'm really low, I will remind myself that I was fired for a misunderstanding and I will, and I will f- taunt myself with, what do all those people think of me? Will they like, forever preserve that idea of who I was then in Amber or who, who they thought I was? Um, and I, it's probably something that I don't know if will ever leave me. It will just become a small, tiny thing that I can use to make myself feel really shit. But I think it's really important to be fired once. And if you're freelance, then to be dropped from a project yeah. once. Because everyone is fallible and everyone makes mistakes and you're probably always going to beat yourself up about it if you're someone like me who kind of likes to 
do themselves down when they're feeling low. But I think it's really uh, building. I know that sounds really lame, but... Builds character. Yeah, it builds character and it builds resilience and resourcefulness. And I think everyone should have a bad work experience or have made a bad work decision and then learn from that. And I definitely, definitely learnt from that experience. So that would be my my low work moment. I'm just going to go and cry now. (laughs) But also I think as you get older, you get so much better at accepting that that people mess up like I think there's so much schadenfreude yeah. when you're younger that you're so relieved that it's not you well, that's you always say up. that we're not like humans aren't binary you're not inherently good or inherently bad Harvey Weinstein interesting well, one yeah. you know people are nuanced and um, people will fall and they will trip up and you have to allow them to get up again and anyone who's half decent understands that sometimes you'll have bad days sometimes you'll have good days sometimes you'll mess up and the other thing is as well and trust me I am still on the long journey to learning this as Pandora can tell all of you if you work and live waiting for people's approval then you will die at the hand of their disapproval. So, again, I'm a chronic people pleaser, but if you, if you kind of are only charged energetically by what people think of you or your work that day, then it's just going to be a long, horrible career. Um, so you just have to find integrity with yourself and what you do and make sure that you're happy every night you go to bed. Can't please everyone. Yeah. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, I think this lady had one more question. Sorry. Uh, do you ever just get exhausted by the fact any kind of opinion you express as sometimes like a barrage? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I personally try not to offer too many disclaimers because I think that can seem quite wishy-washy and I always hate... I hate every... I, I don't want us to become... Like, we are centrist in most of our views so we don't get, like, shit loads of die, bitch, die. But I don't like to be too sitting on the fancy. But yeah, sometimes when we have to type out for the million time, you know, thank you so much for sharing another side of the story. You just think, oh, just fuck off. I can't be oh, that vegan a couple of weeks ago. Jesus. <laughs> Dolly, she's probably going to hear this. I love you seem vegans. to think we're in like a safe space. <laughs> I eat a predominantly vegan diet, but she was testing that email. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, we relish all feedback. Do email the high, the high show at gmail.com. If you can't find it, it will be tattooed on my tits. You can also tweet us at the high low show. Thank you so much to everyone who came to our first ever live podcast at Tibbetts in Mayfair. Do go and enjoy the food boat. I had, what did I have? Did I have a sagaloo? What was it? Sag paneer. Sag paneer and then some Victoria sponge. It was marvellous. And, so. and they did slightly overlap each other. I did spill one into the other. <laughs> Troubling, but no great loss in the, in the, in the you know, history of things. So um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.